Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 44th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is when AI thinks humans feel. I'm joined by Ming-Wei Wong, who, along with Roland T. Rust, is the co-author of The Feeling Economy, How Artificial Intelligence is Creating the Era of Empathy. The publisher is Palgrave Macmillan. Ming-Wei holds a number of posts. She's a distinguished professor at National Taiwan University, a fellow of the European Marketing Academy, an international research fellow of the Center for Corporate Reputation at the University of Oxford, and a distinguished research fellow of the Center for Excellence in Service, in that case at the University of Maryland. She is also the incoming editor-in-chief of the Journal of Service Research. Welcome to the show, Ming-Wei. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So let's plunge right in. Uh, the Feeling Economy. In brief, what is this book about? Uh, this is the book about the economic impact uh, of artificial intelligence. People may mistaken because the, t- the main title of the book is The Feeling Economy, and pe- people may think that's a self-help book or psychiatry book. It's not. If you are looking for such a book, you are looking at the wrong one. In this book, it is it, the book really talk about when AI is a super thinking machine. We all know how good AI is in crunching numbers, in doing the calculation, big data, uh, uh, data analytics. When data can, when AI can do all the super thinking tasks, what can human do? Even in my teaching in the classroom, my students. They are all excellent students because uh, NTU is the best university in, in, in my country and in the area. Even with my excellent students, they often ask me, Professor, are, are we still having jobs in the future? Why are we sitting here to get advanced education? It's because people are so concerned. We know that there is a general concern about AI is going to take over all the jobs. And what can we do? Are we just live happily forever without having to do any jobs? Or we are going to live miserably because AI is going to do all the jobs and we have no jobs, no income, and we're just miserably forever. In this oh. book. Mm-hmm. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. So in this book, we want to emphasize that there are multiple AI intelligences. Yes, currently AI is a super thinking machine, but AI can do more than that, just like humans. Humans is not just some people are thinking are the thinking type and some people are the feeling type. You can ask yourself whether you are good at dealing with people or whether you are good at crunching numbers. When humans have multiple intelligence, it means if AI do the thinking, then humans really can concentrate, concentrate on feeling. Actually, feeling is our human nature. And in the current thinking age, we kind of been trained to be a thinking scientist and try to suppress our feeling nature. So this book concentrates on demonstrating to showing that when AI is so good at thinking, humans should go back to human nature that is feeling so that it it become it become a, a beautiful picture of complementarity between AI, thinking AI and feeling HI. That is the situation. That is when we have the feeling economy. That's what this book about. Okay, so 
the positive way to look at this, and we will have to discuss some of the ramifications that may not always be quite so positive, but that it may liberate us as human beings to go back to what is part of our fundamental nature and celebrate it and make it of use to us, which is our emotional abilities and emotional nature. Since your students raised the issue of employability, uh, I was going to ask this question a bit later, but let me go there now. Uh, you may not remember all the particulars, but there was at one point a reference in the book to a study done by CNBC where they had cold government data and concluded there was 27 best future jobs. These are jobs that are going to pay more than 100000 and that uh, the volume of jobs was going to increase, I believe it was, by at least 10% in the next decade. You mentioned that 21 of those 27 jobs are really a good fit for the feeling economy. If you don't remember exactly what all those 21s were, and I know some are managerial and some were in healthcare, can you just talk about where those opportunities are in some degree of specificity for the future? I think uh, the opportunities are actually exist for all jobs, not just a few jobs, because AI is designed to do some tasks, specific tasks. So there is always a portfolio of tasks in a given job. For example, like, uh, uh, I like being a professor. I like being a professor, uh, not only I have to do my research, that would be the thinking part. I also have to be able to interact nicely with my students. That's the feeling part. And then very often, we still have to file a report to the university, to my department. That is the administration, administrative job part. Almost all jobs comprise the three components altogether. It's just the proportion is different. Of course, jobs. Okay, no, that's, so that's fair enough. Pre- yeah, so our prediction is, of course, if a, if a job has a higher percentage of the feeding component, feeding tests, then the job would be, would be more prosperous in the future. But every job almost has that component. If a job has a lower percentage, a lower percentage of the feeding tests, then the job really had to transform to emphasize the feeling components more. And I have a very good example. Once, uh, I think once I made a presentation on this topic uh, in, in an Informs conference. Informs is an organization that is really comprised of all the computer geeks. It's purely thinking, purely thinking part. So after the presentation, I want audience who is a data analytics approach approached me and said that he's really, really impressed by the talk because he actually experienced the transition in his job personally. He said in the past 10, five to 10 years, even if he is a data analyst, a lot of his job, actually, he spent time, he spent time on communicating with his colleagues, communicating with his clients instead of country numbers, even compared to five or 10 years ago. So he experienced the change already. Okay. You, staying with this employability um, and the fact, I I agree with you utterly that every job has these components. It's just a matter of what, uh, maybe where the emphasis is and the degree. Um, You also mentioned three things, uh, reskilling, cross-skilling, and upskilling. Can you distinguish between those for us and maybe explain who they apply to most in the workforce? Yeah, reskilling means uh, you need to, it's mainly for those uh, workers who has basic education. It may be if you are, if you if you graduate a long time ago, it may be a little bit difficult for you to say, oh, you want to get advanced education. So for those who have basic education, 
if you are if you are in manufacturing sector, then the suggestion is you need to require basic, basic fitting skills so that you can work for the service sector because the fitting economy is dominated by the service sector. The fitting economy we consider is a soft service economy. So reskill is to encourage them to acquire to acquire basic fitting skill. And upskilling, upskilling to be a fitting to be a fitting worker is for the fitting worker and skilled fitting worker. They are fitting worker already, but they are not a skilled one. And then they can upgrade. They can upgrade your fitting, their fitting skill, so that they can become a even better, even better fitting worker. And I have an example about a a fire attendant. A fire attendant does not actually does not require uh very advanced education to be one, and but they require feeding skill. They need to perform the feeding labor, so that they can serve their passengers. But very often these are not very sophisticated, or sometimes we will say that's not really genuine. So, upskill will be a very good path for them, so that then only perform the very routine, uh, superficial, uh, emotional labor. They can be really very. Genuinely uh, empathetic with their passengers, so in that way, both passengers and uh, the passengers can be feel more satisfied with their service. So this is upskilling to upskill up their uh, basic feeling skill to the real feeling skill to be empathetic with passengers. Okay, so um, you know, just to give the broader sweep for for listeners here, so this is really a powerfully important book. It's talking about how the economy, how our society, how our economic prospects are dependent on a movement that is essentially going from brawn to brains to heart. And as part of that movement, which takes us from the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution into uh, the computer age and now AIs that continues to make advances, you talk about going from the physical economy to the thinking economy to the feeling economy. And you also talk about standardization, personalization, and now with the feeling economy, we're going to have relationalization. Can you explain those three terms and what their import is? Okay, uh, the three terms for uh, for standardization, I think that is what based on our multiple AI intelligence view, we consider there are multiple AI intelligences. So we have mechanical AI, thinking AI, and the feeling AI. Mechanical AI is very good at precision. It's so good at doing this kind of routine, repetitive tasks. And so they can provide. Sometimes people, oh, my students, even they will ask me, if that is mechanical AI, if they are good at provide, doing these kind of repetitive routine jobs, is it AI? Actually, it is. It is designed to be this way, and it's for precision. And it has been applied in the in the manufacturing sector very, very commonly because manufacturing very often requires scale benefits, scale economy, and it, it requires precision and consistent quality. And the mechanical AI is designed for that purpose. And so mechanical AI really can provide standardization benefit. Anything, any output, economic output, that requires standardization, they can enjoy that. And you can also see the fast food. Fast food can use mechanical arms to prepare food. That is an example of mechanical AI provides standardization benefit. And thinking AI, the major benefit of thinking AI is you can see the ACNA could do data mining. It can see uh, can can see the 
can discover new patterns from the data. So it's so good for precisation. And Netflix, Netflix movie recommendation is the best example. Sure. Without Netflix, we recommend movies for viewers. Nowadays, it's almost impossible for us to choose which movie to see. I, I believe nobody will request that. I don't want to do presentation. Just give me the list so that I can choose the movie myself. I think it's almost impossible given the number, the number of movies that uh, Netflix has in the database. So presentation is to pick out things for customers, for users, based on their preference. And that is a major benefit of thinking AI. For feeding AI, feeding AI is really to interact, to interact and communicate uh, with users. So it really provides experience benefit. It provides the benefit of establishing relationship with the users. So we can see chatbots, conversational bots are, uh, are very typical examples. But we often also see that uh, the interaction are not very ideal is because we don't have real, we don't have real feeding AI yet. Currently, the feeding AI is not very mature. And then luckily, because feeding AI is not very mature, relationalization benefit is in the future. Currently, is human. Is human can do their part better than feeding AI. Now, that's why we are going to have the feeding economy. Otherwise, we don't have any economy because AI can do everything. Sure. Now, you there's a special chapter in this book called The Era of Women. Uh, and I confess to being a lifelong feminist. So one of the things I really liked about this book was also saying this is a real opportunity, whereas the old economy with brawn was quite possibly that you know the male province and then thinking was often drawing on on men's perhaps slightly superior spatial abilities but when you come to the feeling era women have the advantage given their empathy and interpersonal skills quite often just on average so can you talk to us about why and how this is going to be of such benefit to women and i'm also interested in your experiences as a female professional in what i'll call the dwindling days of the thinking economy and how that makes you eager for the feeling economy <laughs> yeah, I love this question. I, I, I'm, I'm personally a feeling. I'm a feeling person, and I'm trained to be a scientist. And I even specifically choose information management as my area because I don't want people to think I'm a female professor so that I can only do emotions. Even if I am actually interested in that, I'm good at that because I can feel it. I'm a and the feeling person, so I really can feel the nuance of of emotions. But I, I train myself, and a lot of female, a lot of female professionals actually really train themselves to be a thinking machine as men, so that they can compete. They compete in in many industry, many jobs with males, and that actually put females in an in a disadvantaged position artificially. So in the feeding economy, uh, that the situation will, will be changed. It is males that is going to be there are going to be in a disadvantaged position, uh, because how can how can male be how can male be as thinking capable as thinking AI? There's no way we can see all the examples. Uh, computer can play chess, AI can play chess better than humans can can world champ play better than world champions play go play a lot of games. So if you want to compete. Uh, with AI in terms of thinking capability, we, this is a losing game. And traditionally, males 
or better in thinking, and they are in a in a in a advantageous position. So in the feeling economy, when AI is so good at thinking, that really, I, I don't have to use myself as an example. I don't have to really just force myself to be a, a thinking machine. I can show, I can leverage my advantage of I'm more empathetic than a lot of male colleagues. Uh, I believe they won't hear this interview. And, <laughs> and a lot of males really just don't have, don't have uh, empathetic capability. And so that really gives female a chance to complement with thinking AI. Thinking AI do the, does the thinking and the females can do the feeling. And that, that's why we predict that in the feeling economy, they will give females a fairer ex- uh, opportunity in the economy. And actually our recent empirical data, empirical evidence really support, supports our prediction that females actually have a better chance to participate in the economy because of uh, the advance of thinking AI. Okay. Now, in the book, if I remember right, the feeling economy you thought would be the dominant mode by about 2036, something in that kind of range. I'm curious, you know, you also say that, yes, as AI gets better and better, it's going to be able to compete at least to a reasonable degree uh, in the feeling space, uh, it may not surpass human beings for some time, maybe mid-century. I don't know if you put a date to that. But there's another book I wanted to bring into this conversation. I imagine you might have read it or at least heard about it. It's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And it raises concerns about privacy issues. And I know that's part of the book. And um, if you don't know the book at all, I can I can give a bit of a thumbnail summary of it, but it's really the privacy issue that she's concerned about and large companies, Facebook and others, you know, essentially uh, leveraging, capitalizing on people's personal data and and uh, all of us as consumers, as citizens losing agency over our private information and, and losing our privacy. Any concerns? How, how does that inner, you know, interact with uh, play off of the A or I revolution and what I and you both hope are some really nice advantages for the feeling economy? Uh, for the privacy issue, it is so hard. Even now, uh, Facebook and Apple are in fights because of privacy issue. Uh, remember that when we say that thinking, the major benefit of thinking AI is to provide personalization benefit. And the personalization benefits all depends on the data. If the users do not, if the users do not, are not willing to provide their data, their preference data to show what they like, what they don't like, then there's no way personalization can do a good job. And that is also the trade-off between data and the personalization is a privacy and the presentation is also the key argument between uh, Apple and uh, Facebook. And the, I want to provide an I don't want to rule other possibility, but I want to provide an alternative view. That is for for example, like I mentioned that male tend not they tend to have lower, lower empathetic capability. A lot of males they do not aware. They do not it's difficult for them to know. They even do not aware their own emotions or how to manage their own emotions. Not to mention to understand other people's emotions. I think they cause a lot of marriage problem already. Yes. And and so the advance, I think that is data. Uh, when we say the data is not 
especially on Facebook, you can see a lot of data or on the internet, a lot of data is emotional data. It's about how consumers feel, what they like, what they don't like. And then that kind of data, actually, if used in the right way, also can help users to understand, to understand their own emotions. A lot of applications uh, we call affective, affective analytics, have really actually used and uh, you use the analytical, use thinking AI to analyze feeling data to help consumers to maintain a better relationship, maintain a better uh, personal relationship, uh, living quality, and help them to understand their own emotions. That has been used quite widely in in psychology, uh, in, in psychology and for relationship benefit already. So that is the benefit that I think I would like to highlight that it's always a trade-off between privacy and the personalization. It depends on to what degree you are willing to give up, uh, to give up privacy, or I would not say give up privacy, to what degree you are, with, you, you are willing to trust. You are willing to trust the vendors or the institutions who that provide the personalization benefits so that you'll be more open up, because actually that's true. Personalization depends on the accuracy of the data. Sure, and then relationalization is going to depend on, indeed, that trust that you just mentioned and the fact that the consumer is willing to allow for that privacy because there's something in it for them as as well. So uh, maybe that's part of the path forward here. I, I do remember some years ago, there was an article, I think it was in Financial Times, and I read it you know, mid-flight, saying that Google was kind of like the last of the almost – not these terms because uh, I hadn't read your book yet, but the thinking economy and Facebook was the harbinger of the the feeling economy. I, I bring this up because of the Internet of Things. Where do you think the Internet of Things is going to take us uh, in terms of the feeling economy and then the advances and encroachments of AI? Internet of Things is mainly is, is the mechanical. Uh, in our categorization, is the mechanical AI. Okay. And... So it's major benefit. I think I'm very happy to hear that you bring this topic when we talk about uh, feeling economy because actually it serves as the backbone. It connects oh, when we discuss the privacy issue because the internet thing actually connect connects every dot and every person, every object together. So without internet thing, the data is not going to flow between different dots. So when individuals and are all connected together and the objects are all connected together, actually it really make a data be more available, more available for personalization. That's the positive side. And of course also it make the users in the higher risk of privacy issue, a privacy problem. So that will be, it's double-edged. So we discussed that it's the backbone, internet thing, it's the backbone. And it's the mechanical AI that 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 comes to the backbone of thinking AI and the feeling AI because it can it collect it more like it's more like it collect data and make a data flow in the network so that we can decide whether we want to share to what degree we want to use. And those are a lot of issues. But without the backbone, there's no data there. 
Sure. So this is all fascinating stuff. There's a few more places I want to get to because this book has a lot of reach. And just in a few minutes, if we can maybe touch on each of these, I particularly want to go to education reform. Uh, in part, I just spoke to someone this morning who's in that sector and said, oh, oh my God, we're, they are 10 years behind where things are at. They're, they're not even practically at the, at the, at the doorstep, in many cases, of understanding that the feeling economy is upon us. Uh, that they're still thinking very much about hard skills and training in terms of thinking analysis, but EQ is hardly in the in the curriculum whatsoever. What are your thoughts about where, from your vantage point, where we're at in terms of education and education reform, and how are we going to get this out there so that it's beyond just the purview of the psychology department alone, for instance? Yeah, there are two issues I can I can comment on. The first one is. I think nowadays, uh, data analytics program is is booming in almost in all university. Every university is trying is striving to provide data analytics program. That is really in the wrong direction because data analytics that is so straightforward thinking AI can do, and the and the humans just really cannot all be thinking AI and become a super data analyst and. We also see that in a lot of, especially in the U.S., in a lot of programs, we see American Americans cannot compete with international students on this, and it turns out to be it's very imbalanced in the university in the classroom. That for data analysis is is full of international students, based on their uh, strong STEM uh, training in their own culture, and the. I will not say they are happy. A lot of students in my in my program, I mean the information management, which is which is part of STEM education and and it's very popular because it's very good, it's very easy to find a job. But it's data content, it's really it's thinking, it's thinking training. We train students uh, to be a thinking machine. A lot of students will drop out or are very unhappy because they major because of the future, the easier to find a job, or because parents want them to do it. And that is so wrong. So we really need to, I think, it's not just for finding a job, but it's also for, for well-being. We really need to provide students with EQ training, not, STEM, not just STEM education. That is very essential. And, and the second part I would like to uh, comment is the body, whether whether emotional intelligence is, is trainable. I think a lot of people may have that, may have a concern about whether it's trainable because it seems it's more natural. You come with it or you don't have it. And we are not so sure to what degree that is true. But if we don't begin to provide more balanced education, we never know. Because even if it's not 100% trainable, if we can provide students with better emotional skill, it, it, even if it does not benefit to their career, it definitely will benefit to make them be a better human being. Well, in fact, I think it will benefit their career. Having been in academia uh, with a PhD myself, I know that the classroom doesn't always manage to get to the interactive skills as much as it could. And certainly in the business world, I just the other day read an article that uh, you know hard skills are only about 11% of the reason why people fail at a job. Uh, the rest largely comes down to uh, 
personality, uh, emotional intelligence, emotional discipline, interactive skills, empathy, uh, so many of the things that you're, you're championing in this book in, in you know, relation to the feeling economy. Just one of the places I wanted to go to, um, and you could take on either or both of these. One is you, you, this book really goes broad to talk about also the fact that the feeling economy is giving us a different version of the media in terms of Rush Limbaugh, who just passed away, Fox News, uh, different candidates uh, from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, who are highly emotive in their style, and even in, in the arts and creativity and how AI is going to interact. So that's my last question, essentially, take it where you'd like to. But there's a lot of trend lines here that are, that are fascinating to pursue and have a lot of implication for our society, particularly, obviously, in terms of the political leaders who take us forward. Do you mean the political leaders, political leaders, emotional, uh, political leaders EQ? Yes. I mean, the book does mention everything from Boris Johnson to Donald Trump to Joe Biden. I mean, are we indeed going to be seeing a, a version of politician who, uh, you know, Donald Trump's considerable number of, uh, you know, misstatements or, you know, um, I'm not sure. I guess I want to just call them flat out lies, quite honestly, but uh, not so much anchored in facts analytically as uh, emoting strongly, but that having a lot of appeal for, for voters often. Are we, do you think that with AI, not only are we getting to get a more feeling economy, are we destined to keep having feeling politicians? Is that, is that the future that you, you and your co-author project? I think I can use I can use Trump and Biden as uh, as uh, as the pair of example. Okay. And uh, so I think Biden Biden's campaign political campaign even now I think he's really play uh, empathy heavily uh, in all his talks uh, about the COVID or in his also talking during his campaign he emphasized uh, he's really just soften his tone and emphasize empathy. And sometimes during his campaign, people were thinking about he was too soft. But actually, that's his, uh, that's his campaign. His main thing is empathy. And he wants to bring the empathy into the campaign instead of just uh, being, being negative. And for, for if, if I compare Biden's campaign with uh, Hillary's campaign, you can see Hillary is more like a thinking type. It's more like he asks people to think correct. And to to be more analytical about things, about fact, and then you can see people did not really buy it. But the interesting thing is, most of the uh, uh, politicians, including the pair, the pair between Biden and the, and the Trump, they all play emotions. But it, it all depends. It's just based on whether you play emotions in a positive way, genuine way, or not. And the emotion, when we say the feeling economy, in the feeling economy, empathy is the key thing. We mean genuine empathy. Yeah. We don't mean, yeah, we don't mean just you play people's emotion. I think that is a key distinction. And that is also why in the subtitle of the book, we emphasize empathy. It means genuine empathy. Empathy is to understand other people's emotion is different from play people's emotion. Yeah, no, I, I certainly, even though the, the words are not in the book with any frequency, authenticity and trust uh, seem to me certainly part of the equation here with the uh, feeling economy. So, Ming Wei, I want to thank you so much. Our, our time is about up. Uh, thank you for being my guest here on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 44. 
When AI Thinks, Humans Feel. My guest has been Ming-Hui Wong, the co-author of The Feeling Economy, How Artificial Intelligence is Creating the Era of Empathy. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. To check out other episodes, you can go to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network website where the podcast appears under its special series programming. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I would like to quote from a character, Gigolo Joe, in Steven Spielberg's 2001 movie, AI, Artificial Intelligence. And the character says at one point, man made us better at what we do than was ever humanly possible. So think about that. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.